right, John, here we go with part two of our two-part series on the flow state and flourishing. Today, we are talking to Dr. Garrett McGowan and Dr. Jared Weintraub. Um, again, both former colleagues with Flow Research Collective, but really interesting and different conversation because Garrett and Jared are really focused on, I think, flow in the workplace, right? Or flow in, in work-like environments. Yeah. So Garrett is a, a four-time startup founder. He's an angel investor. He's a coach for entrepreneurs, for CEOs. Um, he really, I think, is, is kind of the, um, the brain behind cause-related loyalty marketing. Um, he does kind of all-star mentoring for tech stars, um, you know, you name it. If, it. if it's in the business world and it's about performance, flowiness, um, and how that kind of relates to overall flourishing, right, and optimization, Garrett's into it. Um, tell us a little bit about Jarrett, though. Well, Jarrett, like Garrett, is also deeply involved in flow research and applying that research in the workplace. He's the founder of the Flow Group LLC, which is an organizational and business development firm that works with individuals and companies to help them create and maintain happy, healthy, and productive workplaces, focusing on embedding you know, research in flow into workplace practices. His PhD is in applied organizational psychology, and during that PhD, he researched flow theory, how, when, and why individuals, teams, and organizations can get into a flow state, the state of optimum human experience and performance. And most recently, his research in this area has explored how we can use technology-based solutions to nudge, to use the technical term, behavior change in order to develop key competencies for flourishing at work. And it was particularly interesting to chat to him today about you know his research in this area. What did you uh, most enjoy, Nick? About yeah, that? so I think our listeners are going to hear you know a bit more about how to think about this, this idea of the flow state, right? Um, connection to important work outcomes and how that relates to flourishing, how we might yeah. think about kind of work-life balance versus work-life synergy. And then some of the how-to pieces, right? Creating more flow in your life, of course, but also creating more flow for your team or organization. So yeah. enjoy our conversation with Jared and Garrett. My guys. Oh, Garrett. Hey. Hello, hello. hello. Of course, nice Garrett comes in rocking the apple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. You're I wish I had a wing hat, but no, all I got is piston. <laughs> So you're in the Alps, Jared, you're what, Upper East Side? Upper West Side. Upper West Side, excuse me. Excuse yeah. Me. Give, me, give me the cross streets. I'm on 93rd in Columbus. 93rd in Columbus. Yeah. Nice yeah. New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've been up here. We moved here in June, so um, before we were in, in Greenwich Village, so a little, probably a little hipper back then, but now... Uh, not not too bad for real estate either. Yeah, no worries. I actually am home seeing my family. So it only takes me about 24 hours that I can use a few hour break from my mom. So this is perfect. <laughs> awesome. Well, okay. Well, that's a wonderful place to, to call home. That's fantastic. Mm. We'll edit that part out, Garrett, in case she listens to this. <laughs> please do. Please do. It's, nice, it's nice to hear someone pronounce mom, mom as well. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, nine years in Canada did that to me. So yeah, it, it tweaked my my language a bit. Love to kind of dig into your backgrounds a little bit. Um, obviously, you know we're talking about human flourishing, but we're going to talk more specifically probably about the place of flow, business, and entrepreneurship and human flourishing. 
So with that in mind, I'd love to hear how each of you kind of came to the points that you are in your both, you know, professional lives. Um, I guess we can do maybe age before beauty and start with Garrett. Damn it. I wanted to be the pretty one. <laughs> what happens when you how to interpret that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell my wife you said that. Good, good. Please do. I'll try to be as brief as I can. This can be a pretty long-winded story. Um, but I, I've been a competitive athlete for quite a long time. I would say I guess I'm a retired one now and, and more of a recreationalist. But I was a, a competitive whitewater kayaker. Uh, for about 20 years and traveled all around the world, um, trying to huff myself off big waterfalls and challenged myself on, on big rivers. And um, I didn't know, uh, I mean, I had heard of the, con the, the construct of flow before, but I didn't really define it as such. Um, I was a kid that had ADHD. You know, I, was, I wasn't diagnosed as that when I was growing up. They didn't really call it that. The teachers just said, Garrett's disruptive and he doesn't pay attention in school. But I found this hobby, which was, you know, kayaking down rivers that made me incredibly present and incredibly focused is the most immersive experience that you can have being in such a chaotic environment. And I was, you know, hooked, hook, line and sinker. And I did it 150, 200 days a year for well over a decade. And then as my, my career started to, to take off, you know, post-grad school and I started building ventures, I kind of felt myself going back to my childhood where I had a lot of trouble kind of focusing and concentrating. And, uh, you know, I kind of felt my performance uh, wane a little bit. Um, didn't really realize it at the time because I hadn't really deconstructed the, the concept of flow. But it was on one particular startup venture um, that was pretty high pressure. We raised millions of, of dollars. We're a fast-growing company. But then I got way out of balance. You know, I was working 16, 18-hour days, living out of a suitcase a couple hundred days a year, um, in a big pressure cooker environment, wearing many, many hats. Um, then it caught up with me. And, uh, you know, I ended up like picking up all of the classic coping mechanisms I started smoking cigarettes in my 30s. I started drinking more. I was never a big drinker. I stopped exercising. Um, my sleep suffered. You know, so much of uh, if I was tracking biomarkers at the time, I'm sure they were would have been completely in the tank. Ended up kind of hitting full burnout. Um, I got really lucky. I was able to sell the company and move up into the mountains got a little piece of land and basically started kayaking every day again, you know, skiing all winter, kayaking all summer. And when I was doing that, I had a couple really profound experiences where I had the classic time transformative experience where I put in on the river, was kayaking by myself. You know, an hour and a half later, I got to the end at the takeout. I pulled my skirt on my boat and I realized that I had no working memory of what had happened the previous hour, hour and a half before. At first, it kind of freaked me out. I started doing a little research, was reintroduced to the topic of, of flow. Started Actually, it was a lot of Stephen Kotler's work that brought me back to Chiksent Mihai's work. Um, you know, Stephen Kotler did a lot of work on research on flow with extreme sports athletes. So he really kind of helped to unpack that, con that construct in the environment that I was operating in. And I had this experience happen a, a few more times. So I started digging into it and I realized what was unfolding 
And of course, naturally, the first question came is, why am I able to have this experience almost on command in certain domains in my life and struggle so profoundly to have similar experiences in other domains? So I started digging deeper. I thought I was going to write a book about it um, because I, I was also seeing a lot of other entrepreneurs facing similar struggles. Um, this is the early 2010s. There were a ton of like high-profile founders, entrepreneurs that were struggling with mental health, that were st- struggling with performance, addiction, whatever it might be. And I thought I wanted to understand it a little better. Um, ended up meeting another former kayaker who convinced me you know, in my early 40s to take on PhD research. So I decided to take a sabbatical from life and uh, do a PhD, which was on uh, flow and entrepreneurs, trying to understand the kind of antecedents of flow in an environment where I hypothesize would be very hard for many people to kind of find that state. So here I am. Some sabbatical spending it on a PhD. (laughs) Right? That's it's. It's enjoyable. That's great yeah, work. It's, yeah. it's meaningful work. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into that more. Um, but yeah, just listening to your backgrounds and other other interviews you've done, I think it's interesting that, um, Jared, we're going to pop over to you in just a sec. But it seems to me that you both kind of had somewhat similar paths and that you started with a thing, right? Garrett, yours, competitive whitewater kayaking. Jared, yours, music, I think. But eventually arrived to sort of similar points where you're helping businesses, whether it be startups or big businesses and consulting, kind of think about flow and optimization and performance and its impact on flourishing there. So, Jared, you get to tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to kind of a similar place? Sure. Yeah. So for me, um, I always wanted to pursue music. I was a musician my whole life. I kind of went to college as a as a backup plan, but ended up performing a lot in school and then um, coming out of school, I pursued a, a career in music for about three years. And, um, you know, part of what I think made my, um, like being a musician so enjoyable was the feeling of being in flow, that feeling of being in the zone while performing. And the feedback that I would often get was that that aspect of my performance being in the zone, like visibly people could tell that like, I, I gave my all, I kind of like let myself go on stage and was my most like authentic self, uh, they would say, oh, like I loved watching you because I could tell, you know, how into it you were. And um, like just that feeling was so amazing alone and in a group, right? Performing, um, I was in acapella groups and in bands and, um, you know, that individual flow, but also that feeling of like being enmeshed in this like point in time together with a group of people doing something that's really difficult, but achievable at the same time. Uh, and then like losing track of time in that performance. And when it's over, just feeling, you know, like, wow, it's the best feeling in the world. That's really what drove my, my music career. And about three years into it, I stopped feeling that feeling on stage. It was something about just playing empty rooms in New York in these crappy, you know, places just to kind of like get that place on my resume for the next, you know, performance that I was going to do at 10 p.m. on a Monday night to an empty room for for no money. It started to really... um, like stop being enjoyable. And then I stopped feeling that feeling while I was performing. And then I started to feel, well, 
you know, if I'm not feeling this, then others probably aren't feeling it when I'm performing anymore. And that's what kind of made me pivot and switch to startup life. So I started working in in uh, ed tech startups. I had done some work um, in like solar startups that a friend of mine had started and uh, ended up in D.C. working for an, educa- an education technology startup. Um, and during that period, I started to feel like something similar to that performance feeling um, while I was working. Like there was just I was, you know, involved with so many decisions. I had to do like so many different types of tasks that were challenging yet exciting to me. And so I started to feel that feeling of flow um, in my work in the startup environment. Um, and also I started to perform at open mics in DC again. And I started to feel flow while performing again, because it wasn't my main thing anymore. I think there was a lot less pressure on me. Um, and, you know, for a bunch of reasons, I decided to go and do my master's in industrial uh, psychology. The, the, the startup that I was working for was doing very well. And I felt that, you know, if something happened, if we got acquired, um, you know, having a bachelor's and, um, you know, not that many years of experience, I was underqualified to be doing the work that I was doing in my role at that point. So I did my master's in, in industrial organizational psychology. While I was doing that, I read an article about mindfulness and flow and mind wandering in the workplace. And um, I've been practicing mindfulness since I was about 12 years old. Um, so I was very familiar with like what that was, like the construct of mindfulness or whatever, but I had never put a name to the feeling of flow before. And so I when, when I read this article, his the, the author's name was Scott Dust, who I've since become close with and um, co-authored articles with, um, you know, after that, I thought, wow, like this feeling of flow, this is what I've been feeling at work now. This is what I felt as a musician. The article really talked about how it was very understudied in the workplace compared especially to like mindfulness at that point. And I saw a big, a big gap in the literature and thought, oh, like I can, I can do this. I can become an expert in this area. And then my experience with technology led me to think, oh, I could also tie technology into this equation and see if I can use nudges as a way to help um, teach people some of the things that they can do in order to get into flow. There was no research. There was like literally no empirical validation of any kind of flow interventions in the workplace that existed at that point. And so I said, this is my mission. I, I see, you know, the um, sort of the, um, the theoretical things that I can contribute, but also like in practice, I think that this can make a big difference in, in people's lives. And so that's, I went full steam ahead and, you know, the rest is history. So let's, let's get into this. I mean, a little bit more deeply and, and more nuanced then, because you're, you're both referencing, I think what we might commonly call sort of, you know, antecedents of flow or flow triggers or different characteristics of the experience. And I want, I want you to kind of tell our audience sort of what you both do and how you kind of apply flow to various business settings um, and how you see that kind of related to human flourishing. But before we even get to that point, I'd love each of you to kind of define how you think of the flow state. Let's, let's start with Jared and then bounce over to Garrett. Yeah, so I, I kind of think about flow in the classic academic sense in a way, right? That's how I, how I kind of define it. So 
Um, there's kind of nine elements to flow. Three of the nine are potentially considered uh, as prerequisites, but there's an argument as whether they could be prerequisites and also part of the experience, which is kind of how I envision it. Um, so it's this feeling of being in the zone where you have a clear goal. Um, the challenge skill balance is in place. So this is when you have, you know, a high level of challenge in the tasks that you're doing, but you also have the skill to meet the, um, the challenge of that moment. Um, and you also have feedback. So you kind of know whether or not you are on your way to achieving that goal, right? So those are the three uh, kind of prereqs. Um, when those are in place, you you know, feel reduced self-consciousness. So you're not really worried about whether or not you're doing a good job. Um, you feel a feeling of control. Um, sometimes, you know, time will feel distorted. It will either speed up or slow down depending on the situation. Um, it feels really good. So there's this idea of intrinsic reward. Um, you're very focused and block out distractions. And I'm trying to think if I missed any anything else there. You guys can help me out. Uh, you, you covered you covered most of the bases, and we're going to want to double click yeah. on a couple, especially yeah, the, yeah, for sure. The feel good piece, but uh, but I, but I kind of feel like it's a holistic feeling of these things kind of combined, and that there are in certain cases more or less of a feeling of each of them, and that's part of the the challenge in like measuring it at, at an academic level. But I kind of think if you feel multiple of those things at once, then to me, it kind of counts as a flow state. Do you think, before we bounce over to you, Garrett, Jared, as a follow-up, do you think, I often will describe it sort of as a spectrum. There's sort of like mm -hmm. lack of focus or distraction. There's focus, there's hyper-focus, but then there's flow, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is that, that kind of how you conceptualize it as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it. you kind of know it after you've been experiencing it. I think the next level is that you know it while you're experiencing it, you know? Um, but yeah, it's like that feeling when you like click into that place, right? Like you're right. Like you can be focused on a task, but not be in flow, but then all of a sudden like you, you can feel that click happen. And like that, that to me is like the threshold. It's, it's, it's a little squishy there, but that's, yeah. that's the space that we're in. Right. Yeah. Well, can I, can I, can I ask on that? So Jared, so do you think that, cause some people, you know, such as Martin's, Seligman think that we we don't really know when we're in flow in the present moment. It's retrospectively we can look back at wow, I was so absorbed in that because you're so absorbed you're just not conscious of it. But you, what you're suggesting is that we actually can be consciously aware that we're in flow at the time because if you're aware of that click moment, I'm in this now. So do you think that that we are we can be aware in flow in the present moment? So my personal, with no research on this area, I'm not actually aware of whether or not there's even a way to to measure that, but. Anecdotally and in my like experience coaching people, um, I think that step one is realizing like, oh, I was in flow, right? That's sort of just understanding when it's happening to you so that you can sort of start to um, recreate the, um, the foundation for those experiences to happen. But then kind of the next level advanced, you know, uh, flow mastery or whatever is like, yeah, I'm in flow right now. Like how can I keep it going without like 
kind of going over the, you know, too far to the left or the right of the, of the focus threshold, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so, you know, like when you're performing and you're going, you're soloing and um, you know that you're doing a great job, right. Often yeah. um, what happens is people will fall out of flow and then they'll, they'll kind of mess it up from there. But I think again, the next level is like, this is going well. I feel that I'm in this pocket like just keep it going, keep it going and like relaxing yourself and like trying to like not overthink it, but keep focused yeah. um, to me is like that next level that, that becomes very difficult for people. It's, it strikes me that this might be part of the place where we get this notion of like getting in your own head, right? Like you actually mm-hmm. don't want to do that. In some of these cases, you want to just, just go and kind of let it be once you enter that state. So here at UC, mm-hmm. UC flow in a pretty similar way. Yeah. I mean, generally, yes, but it, I do see it as a, as a spectrum for sure, because I think there's certain domains of flow that are even more immersive than others. Like I, when I, when I talk about flow and I think about it, I, I really think about it as this deeply immersive state, right? And mm-hmm. if you're able to achieve this deep sense of immersion, and and presence, you end up usually you end up feeling great afterwards, and and sometimes you do uh, really meaningful, really really good work. Um, I think the you know one of the Jared kind of named off most of these characteristics of flow. I think there's a, a couple others worth mentioning, right? One is this idea of time transformation, right? That when you're so deeply in the zone that you can you essentially lose lose sense of, of time, right? And I think like there's some uh, neuroscience uh, hypotheses around this with the prefrontal cortex, which, um, you know, is kind of responsible for your, your time and space awareness and whether that actually slows down in that state, I think is, is still up for debate. But certain characteristics, certain environments of flow, um, you know, I, I completely have lost sense of time. 100%. It was almost like I was knocked unconscious and I woke up an hour later and had no recollection of what was happening before. I've had other flow experiences in, in work or, or also playing music or, or doing other complex pursuits where I've definitely had it, but not to that degree. Now, my kind of key trigger in those really deep immersive experiences was, was risk, right? When you're dealing with life and limb, um, to me, that's a really deep trigger. I think you can have social risk as well. I imagine if I was, you know, playing music on stage in front of a thousand people, some of those same, you know, uh, dynamics might might come to light. So for me, there are different degrees of it. When I've been deeply in it, I have not been able to be aware of it, and I would hypothesize that if I had become aware of it, I would no longer be in it to to that degree. Um, I, I think the one other piece of kind of the, the components of flow uh, that's worth mentioning is um, is what Cheek sent me high called the autotelic personality, yeah. right? Which is yeah. which is all around the the topic of motivation, right? That you know you're pursuing a, an activity simply for the sake of doing it. You know you would be doing it regardless if you were being recognized or or rewarded for it. So I kind of think of this as a, you know, there's a couple different layers to it, right? You've got this kind of foundational layer of, of motivation, 
right? And understanding your, your why. And then you can start looking at these different characteristics. I would say there's my research kind of looks at a, a layer in between, which is kind of your biology and how are you priming yourself biologically and psychologically to prepare yourself to be able to unlock those, those different triggers. And then how do you, how do you adapt the, your environment to be able to kind of unlock those different levers and, and play with them and adapt them so you can kind of push yourself back into that flow state. I think this is a great discussion, in-depth discussion of flow, and it's amazing to draw on your research expertise and experience in these areas. Let's try and connect this up with human flourishing, if we can. Um, so we've seen various ways that for you both, flow is, is where you, you found yourself performing at a very high level in the zone, as, as Jared put it, which is kind of the paradigmatic example, if you like, of flow, and you know where you were at, at a professional level in, in some activity. And where you, you know, and we've connected that a bit with happiness, perhaps as well, where Jared was in particular describing how people, people watching him perform saw that he was just so immersed in this thing that he was one with it, that it was really his authentic self coming through. So I'd like to ask each of you, perhaps starting with Jared, because we just heard from Garrett, um, how you might connect this up with human flourishing, where we think of that as living a good life or having very high well-being, for example, in mm. terms of how it's how you feel it contributes towards your overall happiness or life satisfaction or fulfillment of potential and, and these kinds of areas. Yeah. So for me, um, the reason that I've kind of been able to focus on flow in the domain of work specifically, because my, you know, my degree is in, in organizational psychology um, really is that flow itself has been shown to be a predictor of a lot of really important work outcomes um, that I would kind of associate with with flourishing, at, you know, specifically at work, right? Um, so in my research, we've looked at um, flow and burnout and how flow actually reduces burnout and flow and engagement, how um, flow leads to engagement in the workplace and also um, performance. So you, you tend to perform, you know, at your best when you're, when you're in flow. Um, so that's, you know, that's, why I think flow is um, sort of, you know, in this flourishing conversation. I, I love it because it is um, like a, a three birds plus with one stone type of thing where if you can, um, you know, create an environment for your employees or as an individual, um, you know, create the environment for yourself where you're, you're experiencing flow then like you get all of these great outcomes associated with it um, using like, you know, not that complicated things essentially. Um, so, I mean, there's all these theoretical reasons for why I think flow, you know, increases well-being and, and decreases stress and increases performance, all those things. But that's kind of the core of why I think flow is associated with, with flourishing. Great. Thank you. I mean, let's, let's zoom in on, one of those, well, two of those that are related, so stress and burnout, mm -hmm. then it seems that flow is, or at least trying to increase the prevalence of flow experiences in a person's life can mitigate or prevent one of the most damaging and pernicious things in the modern world, stress, particularly workplace-related stress, which at its peak would result in burnout. So mm -hmm. I mean, can, we, can we zoom in a little bit more on that and talk about your, your work in that area? What what's, um, I mean, what in particular... Are you interested in and working on it on the relation between flow and stress? 
Yeah. So, so my research, I've shown that like flow can reduce stress or like the, the experience of flow um, makes people report feeling stress less. And uh, in a lot of ways, I think some of the core aspects of flow naturally reduce stress, right? So the challenge skill balance is, is one of the key elements of flow that like actually some, some studies measure flow experience just in the sense of like, did you feel like you were, you had that challenge skill balance in place, which is, I don't think the best methodologically, but it shows you how, how kind of core to flow this idea is. So um, the theory goes that, you know, when you have high challenge and low skill that you feel like stress and anxiety, when you have low skill, when you have high skill and low challenge, then you feel like boredom and apathy. Right. And so by, um, putting elements in place that make you experience flow, you're sort of making people come out of that stress zone and like reduce that feeling of imbalance, which I think just makes people feel better and feel less stressed because of that. Like just that like natural ability. If, if you're in flow, you have to be in that like, you know, challenge skill balance zone. So you can't, it's almost like you can't be stressed if you're experiencing flow, right? It's, it's, it's part of the kind of elements of it. And then like that intrinsic reward as well, when you feel like um, you're accomplishing something, you're operating at the edge of your ability, but still flourishing, then that feeling of well-being also increases like your self-efficacy or your beliefs and like your ability to do things. And I think that that also increases your well-being in the short term and in the long term, just from like building that up over time. Yeah. So as a you've brought out here a wonderful possible tension that I want to draw attention to and, and discuss between some of the things that, that you've just said, Jared, and something you said earlier, Garrett, in relation to flow. So you you observed, Garrett, very interestingly, that you see um, higher levels of anxiety sometimes bring people you work with in the entrepreneurial space into a higher flow state. One would think that higher anxiety results in, and almost is, you know, the same as high levels of stress or as a form of high levels of stress. As Jared's just, you know, commented from his research, low level of, you know, flow is used to reduce stress and in the flow state, almost you can't feel stress. So can, can the two of you <laughs> help me resolve this tension? This is fascinating. I mean, I, I'll tell you from my side that, um, you know, I don't think higher levels of anxiety are enabling a flow. I think being more comfortable under duress will enable you to be, you know, to have a greater chance of, of getting into flow. You know, stress is an incredible motivator. And I think sometimes we think of stress negatively. And so much of the dialogue that we yes. hear is like stress is unhealthy, stress is killing you, but stress is the thing that gives us perseverance. It's what drives us. It's what helps us push our boundaries, you know? And, you know, we're talking about, when we're talking about the challenge skill balance that, that Jared so eloquently mentioned, you know, it's, it's stress that's kind of, you know, forcing us to, to push the, the boundaries of what we're comfortable with. So I think those things actually, actually go hand in hand. If you have, you know, deep anxiety, you are not going to get into flow. Like it's it's quite paradoxical to the 
flow experience. Because one of the the kind of core definitions of the flow experience is that you know your your kind of ego melts away, your sense of self is reduced, and you kind of be- your actions and awareness merge, and you kind of become part of the experience, you know, kind of the protagonist of the journey rather than in conflict with whatever it is you're doing. So yeah, I, I, I do think anxiety as it's defined is problematic, but stress, stress is to the right degree, whether it's physiological or psychological stress is, you know, what, what pushes us to achieve and, you know, pushes us just beyond our comfort zones where the magic happens. If we're always operating within our comfort zone, it's too easy. And mm-hmm. we're not going to find that kind of rewarding experience and that, that kind of joyful moment that pushes us into that level of flow and, and flourishing and feeling those feelings of accomplishment that are, are so meaningful that make us want to get up and do it again. Great. Yeah, well, I want to I want to speak to the kind of the dynamism of flow that I think we're eliciting here in this conversation. And Jared, I like what you mentioned. You're kind of, you know, killing three birds with one stone here, a lot of birds with a stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, although my, my co-director at Shipley is a, a big PETA fan and she would, she'd prefer that we say we feed birds with scones. Uh, as well. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple birds uh, with one stone. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I like that. Um, so, you know, not to get too into the weeds here, but I think something you're both bringing up is like, when we talk about reducing stress through flow, what do we mean by the stress? Do we mean perceived stress on a self-report measure? And then Garrett, to your point, like you might say, well, if somebody feels they can take on a challenge, it's actually not a harmful stress. It's an exciting stress. It's a meaningful stress, right? So like, what is the, what is the creator of that stress? How are we responding to it? And then subsequently measuring it, right? If you can meet that challenge, that's where Jared, you mentioned the growth of efficacy and confidence, right? Um, the mm-hmm. deeper forms of engagement. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, these, these different birds that we're talking about, I mean, in terms of flourishing, I see potential reduction in ill being, whether that's stress or anxiety, right? an increase in confidence, an increase in engagement and sense of personal growth, and autotelic experiences, which tend to be highly motivating, deeply meaningful, and extremely fulfilling, right? So we're, we're doing a lot of great stuff here just from one sort of, you know, neurophysiological state, which is, which is pretty incredible. Um, Jared, you wanted to jump in here and maybe kind of reconcile some of these thoughts, or did I just summarize it? No, I mean, I, I think you touch on it very well. I think um, one of the thing, one of the other things that I love about this this whole theory and practice is that a lot of the um, a lot of the dimensions that are uh, associated with flow seem very simple on their kind of surface, right? Clear goals, the challenge, skill, balance, feedback. Those are uh, oh yeah, clear goals, right? Like yeah, obviously I need to know what I'm doing, but goal setting is a very deep theory in itself where there, you can get into, you know, the, the, the nitty gritty and the details goals themselves can mean almost anything. Feedback is a whole area of research that, you know, you could give people horrible feedback. You could give them great feedback, right? I think the challenge to balance is extremely complex because it's actually all about perception, right? Both challenge and skill can be extremely subjective ideas. And so 
when we're coaching people, uh, you know, how to help them to kind of increase their ability to get into flow, it's often just about reframing the challenge, the, you know, the, the stress-inducing, what they call distress into eustress, right? Just making reframing this idea that the thing that you're going up against is this impossible thing to beat rather than like a puzzle that we're going to figure out together. And then once you kind of like think, you know, reverse engineer the goal from, you know, this huge high level goal that's going to take years for you to accomplish down to like, all right, let's get started today on like this task, this task and this task that will eventually lead you to your goal. Then the challenge skill balance kind of like in your mind comes into, you know, a more um, manageable place. And then those kind of um, strategies that are very difficult to learn if you've never thought about them before in the past, but with some practice, with some coaching, like starts to become a habit that you constantly are, you know, reframing um, stressful situations as challenges that are, you know, possible to overcome, um, then, you know, then you start to get into flow more and then you get all of those kind of downstream, um, you know, benefits from it. Yeah. You know, the reframing piece is so important. Um, The idea that kind of stress or any of these triggers can essentially be experienced subjectively, right? Like they're based in part Mm -hmm. or oftentimes based on perception. You also (laughs) mentioned clear goals, which I think is a particular area of expertise of yours. I know you just recently uh, published a paper, which I'd love for you to plug. Um, But also maybe if we want to go down that that road, because you have a particular area of focus in SMART goals, and depending on Mm -hmm. the way you lay out the acronym, sometimes I've seen the A is achievable. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I've seen the R is realistic. But either mm-hmm. way, those speak to what you're talking about. When I take on a goal, do I think it's actually possible? I don't, I don't, mm-hmm. for instance, have to run a marathon, you know, all 26 miles at once. I just have to put one step in front of the other over and over and over again, right? Will mm-hmm. you take us into a little bit of the research on kind of smart goals, clear goals, and that achievable piece? Yeah. So goal setting theory is one of the most robust psychological theories that exist. There's so much good evidence for uh, Locke and Latham's goal setting theory, right? Um, and part of the tenets of, of goal setting theory are like you have to set specific goals that you can measure and that are challenging and not overwhelming, right? These are kind of also tenets of goal set of sorry of flow theory right that that challenge skill balance is really important like we've been talking about um and so the framework of smart goals which i'll run through it's to me so there's lots of different ways that's the acronym has kind of um you know shown itself in the in the popular literature right um but the ones that i like to to use are specific measurable achievable relevant and time oriented So specific is rather than saying, you know, I'm going to make a bunch of phone calls today as a salesperson, you would say, I'm going to make, you know, 20 phone calls. So like putting a number on it that you can then, you know, measure, which is the the M, right? Um, And then achievable. So um, if you just put an arbitrary number on your goal and you put it way too high, then you're unlikely to kind of reach that goal because you're going to either realize, oh, I'm never going to achieve this. And so, you know, you don't even try, 
or you try and you burn out and you get really um, upset with yourself for, you know, not being able to do that, which also doesn't bode well for like using the strategy again in the future. Um, so that achievable part is, is important. Relevant is just something that you actually care about and you think that it's worth putting your energy towards. And then time-oriented, it makes there be a kind of defined end date to when you need to achieve the goal by so that it's harder to kind of procrastinate and, you know, just like not do it because it's still your goal. You're still like on your way to achieving it, but you don't actually have to take action or hold yourself accountable for getting it done in a certain period of time. Um, so I've, I've done some research that, uh, was recently published or, uh, along with my co-authors, um, David Cassell and, and Tom DePatty. Um, basically what we did was use nudges. Um, so we, we had an app that we, that we used and, um, there was an experimental and a control group and the experimental group, we, um, sent them an alert in the morning and we just said, here's what smart goals are. And we kind of gave them the similar um, you know, spelled it out, what the SMART means, and then gave the example that I just kind of gave as far as like smart goal versus not smart goal. Asked them to set three in the morning. And then throughout the day, we measured their um, their stress, their flow, then their engagement at the end of the week, and also their performance, um, like how well they thought they performed that day. Uh, and what we found was that uh, in the, the people in the experimental group experienced more flow um, throughout the day and also their flow actually stayed more consistent across the week that we run the experiments on. And that flow led to less stress, higher engagement and higher self-reported performance. So um, it's pretty simple. I, I, you know, the, the core of this, this experiment came from um, me actually using this on myself for you know, several years before where um, I set a reminder for myself to, you know, write some stuff down in the morning for stuff that I should be doing that day. As an entrepreneur, it's hard to, um, you know, the day is up to you, right? And so sometimes if you if you wake up and you don't have a plan, then, you know, five o'clock comes along and you're still, you know, binging something on Netflix and, and didn't get anything done rather than, you know, saying like, I need to get this done, this done, and this done by the end of the day. And actually like sitting down and, and doing that, it was a really useful tool for me. Um, and that's kind of the, uh, yeah, the, the beginning of this, this research. That's how it started. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you for that. And, and congrats on the paper. We'll, I know you said it's you. behind a paywall, but we'll link, we'll link it in the show notes still. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. That's that's a great segue back to you, Garrett, because you are also conducting research, but I think more specifically on entrepreneurs sort of out in the field. And I've heard you describe it a little bit. Will you tell tell us kind of what you're working on right now in terms of the research piece? It's an exploratory study. The data has been collected. So now it's a, a crazy amount of quantitative analysis. But what, what we basically did is we recruited a, a bunch of entrepreneurs in a control group. They were all in a a startup accelerator program called Techstars, which is 14 weeks long. And they kind of go through the same type of curriculum and process um, through that 14 weeks, culminating in a day where they pitch their ventures to investors. So they're all kind of operating on a, on a similar process and a similar time horizon. Um, although, albeit all of the, the ventures and the founders were very different from, from different backgrounds, 
So what I did was I gave him these fitness trackers that are called Whoops that you can wear on your house. You, they're great. So you wear them on your wrist 24 hours a day, and uh, it essentially checks your heartbeat 100 times a second. And through a bunch of algorithms, it can identify some pretty interesting physiological data. Um, it breaks down your sleep quite comprehensively. Um, it measures your nocturnal heart rate variability. So you get a little understanding of your sympathetic, parasympathetic response, um, respiratory rate, uh, resting heart rate, a lot of kind of stress indicators in there. So we gave them these fitness trackers. And then I got them to report uh, a flow scale every day. So, uh, well, five days a week during, during the program, they reported on flow experiences. And then we had another layer of data as well, which is what they were working on during that day. So what we're essentially doing is linking their, their high score flow experiences, their low flow experiences to what they were doing and what their physiology looked like in preparation to it. Because really wanting to understand like what are the physiological antecedents of flow? And of course, and secondarily, what are the work environment conditions that may enable or inhibit it um, in this entrepreneurial context. It's worth mentioning, um, these are early stage startups. They have, they've built some type of product. They have a little bit of early market traction, but they have very limited resources. They're running out of money quickly. Um, they're moving at an incredibly fast pace. You know, the first two weeks of the program, uh, they meet with 10 mentors a day for half an hour each in rapid fire succession. And they wow. do that for two weeks straight. So by the end of the two weeks, they're already absolutely knackered. This happened during... Uh, John, you like that? Because they used some, some British lingo again. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was also during times of COVID. So they were doing this. It was hybrid. Then it was all virtual. They were adapting to new working environments. They were spending their whole day like we are right now uh, on a camera. So there were a lot of interesting dynamics at play. Of course, different people. I was able to see their performance. So people were logging daily meditations, weightlifting sessions, runs. Um, I saw when people took a weekend to go skiing and what that, that, that did for their flow experiences. So they were pretty methodical in tracking their kind of day-to-day, -day, uh, their day-to-day -day lives. Like some others, I mean, it would have been nice to understand their nutrition, things like that, but we see alcohol consumption. They reported each day how they felt about their sleep. So I have this massive, massive data set. So we're literally, you know, comparing different variables one by one. Um, with, I think, about 70,000 data points is, is what I'm dealing with and, and kind of trying to identify these pieces. But we are seeing a few things that I can say early is that um, the really challenging, very focused tasks seem to be uh, the most flow-inducive, uh, inducing the ones that were collective, creative tasks were really, really flow-inducing. And then interestingly, and just to spin it back to the, our beginning of our conversation of how you know, Jared and I found flow in other domains, when, when these people undertook you know, very um, intrinsically motivating activities on weekends, like going skiing or going climbing up a mountain or going hiking or playing in the outdoors and turning off, their, their flow scores increased substantially 
for the next three or four days afterwards. Mm-hmm. So there's some interesting data that's starting to unfold, but um, still a, a lot to be looked at. Uh, I'd love to kind of ask, because I've heard you describe, you know, the ski weekend and some other aspects of, of these people's lives and in, in another podcast that you were on. Um, I think something you at least anecdotally are seeing is that there tends to be sort of a point of diminishing returns. And I think this ties us back nicely to flourishing, especially in sort of the burnout culture that certainly the U.S. exists in, or I think many corporations sort of promote. Um, my, my general understanding, I'd love for you to go in a little bit more detail is that when you see sort of entrepreneurs or in some case engineers who just sort of push and push and push and sacrifice working out, sleep, taking breaks, whatever it might be, what are you seeing happening to their markers and specifically to their experiences of flow? Well, there were a handful of participants in the study that were what I would say pretty out of balance. You know, I saw I saw heart rate variability scores drop 50 points from their their average. Um, sometimes three, four nights in a row, people sleeping less than two hours a night. Some people that got zero physical activity over 14 weeks, and they were not they were not reporting much flow experience at all. So this kind of I, actually to steal Stephen Kotler's words that I love so much, which is this idea of making your biology work for you, yeah. right? The people that were committed to, um, and maybe we can talk about this later, but um, especially in the entrepreneurial world, uh, when you talk about measures of success, the unit of analysis is almost always the firm. Yeah. My argument is unit of analysis when you want to predict you know, success has to be the individual. And when, like, I had some founder teams that were like very active, they meditated, they ran, they lifted weights, they literally broke up their days and kind of amortized their, their work over a longer period of time with breaks to do enjoyable tasks. They almost, always, almost exclusively reported higher than everybody else on flow experience, overall well being. Juries out on the efficacy of the business in the end, but so far um, they have very sustainable trajectories. The people that weren't very well balanced, um, and I still keep in touch with them, mentor many of them on the, on the business side, and you're seeing that very classic roller coaster ride of this entrepreneurial journey, which is so typical, right? You have really big highs and and really big lows. We're always trying to coach people to kind of lop off the highs. You know, check your ego at the door. The big highs don't mean anything. You know, lop off the lows. It's a cyclical process. And the ones that seem to have more variability in their kind of uh, perceptions of their experience are showing very similar variability in the the kind of growth trajectory of their businesses too. Is it is it fair to say that, I mean, for both of you, and maybe Jared, we'll start with you, it, it, it strikes me that this is probably why somebody who's interested in flow also, or business also ends up interested in flow is like, it, it seems to me you guys are trying to kind of find that sweet spot, right? Where a business can perform well, individuals can perform well, they can crush it, but they can feel good while they're doing it and remain in balance. And there's sort of a win, win, win all the way around. I see you both shaking your heads, but Jared, is that kind of what you're after sort of in your role in research? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I mean, it's a million different things, right. But to me, 
what I like about it is the idea that if people feel great while they're working, then they'll do great work, right? And that they'll, um, you know, be less stressed and that less stress actually leads to people taking less sick days, right? And that less sick days leads to lower insurance costs for organizations, right? There's all of these like actual bottom line things that organizations should be interested in that are related to flow. And at the same time, for individuals, there's all of these well-being, um, you know, variables that are associated with flow. So by giving both sides, the organization and the individual, the tools that they need to help, um, you know, get into flow and to flourish, um, you're helping everybody achieve, achieve everything in a way. Um, and I think, you know, the old school mentality is for organizations to get as much juice out of their people as yeah. they, as they can, um, and, and treat them like a commodity that, um, you know, is replaceable, um, uh, in the current situation where the kind of tables have been turned and the, the individuals really have the negotiating power right now, um, organizations are forced to kind of think about this new, way of treating employees and, and allowing them to flourish. And in, in turn, they'll actually benefit from, from that as well in a way that they probably should have been doing for, for years, you know, anyway. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah. what I just heard you mention, Garrett, I want to come back over to you, you know, um, to kind of squeezing all the juice out of their employees. And what I think you're finding, Garrett, not surprisingly, is that you squeeze enough, you run out of juice. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is is we squeeze ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Especially entrepreneurs, you don't need mm-hmm. someone to squeeze you, right? Mm-hmm. You, you've got, especially when you're, you know, charting new territory and you're trying to create something new. And I'm not a good musician like Jared, so b- business and entrepreneurship is my creative outlet, right? So um, it's not a, an issue of these ex- external forces putting it on you in all situations. Sometimes. It's happening internally. And I think the key thing that, that I think about a lot is if you look at the, what the data shows on the predictors of entrepreneurial success, um, the number one predictor is, is time and experience, right? Like there's the, the, the popular media leads us to believe that a successful entrepreneur is some 25-year-old kid in a hoodie packing away in his basement. The data shows that it's someone with 20 plus years of experience. It's their third or fourth venture. The average age of an exited founder is 46 years old. So what does that mean? It's like, it's the, sorry to be cliche, but it's a marathon and not a sprint, right? So it's about fostering a, a sustainable path that you can keep yourself on from the long, for the long term with enough challenge to motivate you, enough novelty to inspire you. And then, you know, I, I like to use the analogy that weightlifters use, which is progressive overload, right? You know, if you do the same thing over and over again, your muscles will adapt to it, right? So you got to lift a little bit more each time to continuously get stronger. The same approach, I think, is, is with business and with entrepreneurship. You need enough motivation and challenge to keep pushing it a little bit more, but not too much that you're going to your energy balance is all out of whack and, and you're going to crash and burn. The, the same analog of physical activity, I think, applies to, to you know, mental and, and cognitive capacity. And that's particularly relevant today, 
right? Our, our entire kind of work culture was built on, you know, the era of the assembly line and the industrial revolution and Henry Ford, our eight hour work days, our schedules were all built on, hey, you're working one part of the assembly line and you're doing your one task over and over again. But the new work environment means we have to engage in creativity, lateral thinking, human interaction, things that are much more cognitively, psychologically, and, and mentally taxing. So being able to, to self-regulate, but also being able to create a work environment that allows us to self-regulate is, is going to be critical for, for long-term success. And I think that's the piece that we're fundamentally missing. We're living in a new world that is still operating in structures of, of an old way of doing things. Great. Thank you so much, Garrett. Well, that, sorry, Jared, did you want to come in on that as well? I, I, I was just going to say that, you know, a lot of the time too, um, our culture does kind of drive this idea of like work, 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 like never rest, never rest. If you're not, if you're not like working, you're, you're like leaving things on the table essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, in, in my experience with the coaching that I've done, often these entrepreneurs, especially who are driving themselves, like they come and they want more flow, but the reality is I have to convince them that if they take time to rest, if they take time to like do things outside of grinding, essentially, you know, that they're actually going to recharge and that they're going to then go back to work and feel, you know, much more rested, much more able to focus and to like get more done at a higher quality in a shorter period of time. And that taking that break is not actually really a break. It's, it's a recovery to then be able to like rebuild your energy and, and, and really flourish. Right. Yeah. Well, Garrett mentioned weightlifting. And I mean, not only do you need to keep increasing the weight, you also need to take Mm -hmm. breaks in between the reps, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Then you also need to vary up the exercises you're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. Variation. I once heard a PT say in the gym that the key to fitness is variation or the key to certain kinds of strength training is variation of various exercises you do, which connects nicely with this general theme that both of you have described, which is balance is so important to mm-hmm. really living a good life. Um, and that brings us on very nicely to the, the next kind of theme we'd like to discuss, which is the relationship between work and human flourishing. And for, you know, so far from, from this conversation, some of the key themes, it seems, are that um, we ought to get away from this view that to be productive at work and to live a good work life is just to grind away at it as put many hours as you possibly can in at the expense of other areas of life that that's not going to be fulfilling or, or bring you happiness in the long term. It's also going to be really bad for your physical and mental health potentially and, and other areas too. Um, that's one of several examples. So, I mean, I'd like to ask you this kind of broad question, and this is particularly pertinent in this very rapidly changing world of work and you two are at the forefront of this working with startups and entrepreneurs and so on. So, um, Garrett, let's, Let's start with you. Do you think there's a natural relationship between human flourishing and, and work? And what does that relationship look like to you? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is absolutely. Um, because work is a part of life. And oftentimes it is, you know, realistically, it's almost one third of, of our adult lives. And I actually get a little bit tired of some of these constructs of, of work-life balance. And 
you know, do you live to work or do you work to live? I think the fact that we simply try to separate these things out into two different buckets is, is problematic within itself because now we're comparing, you know, the time we might spend sleeping or the time we spend with our loved ones or doing the things we love with this other thing that we may do um, partially extrinsically, partially intrinsically, maybe a combination of both, maybe skewed one way or the other. And because we throw these things into three different buckets, we're now assessing trade-offs between them. Oh, you know, if I work more, I'm going to sleep less. Or if I do this more, I'm going to spend less time with my family. And we end up playing this constant game, shell game, kind of trading off between all of them. And to me, if we look at if we look at life a little bit more holistically, and now I'll, I think it's worth mentioning, like not everyone has um, is so fortunate that they can say, "Hey, I'm going to create a, a work experience that that jives with my life." There are many people in the world that just have to have to grind and have to do something very unpleasant to feed their families. But that is, and in those circumstances, you're dealing with some some different different situations. But at least I think the, the people that I tend to work with, I'm guessing a lot of the people Jared tend to work with as well, you know, uh, knowledge workers, entrepreneurs, they do have a little bit more blurring of those lines, yet they're spending a lot of time trying to, to separate those things out. And I think if we just look at, at work as part of life, you know, and something that we want to try to find joy in, just like we want and maximize our efforts with, just like we want to do with sleep or with recovery or with family time, you know, we can start finding experiences that are leading us to a, a life worth living, a flourishing life. When we start parsing them out and we're all trying to achieve, you know, a, a positive experience, optimal performance, flourishing, whatever kind of language you want to put around it, now you have to do it in three different buckets which creates greater pressure, greater stress, greater uncertainty, more interventions, and, and more complexity. Well, synergy, right? Make it synergistic. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, 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 more and more, I'm railing against this idea of balance and more synergy. How do you fuse all of this together in a way that's really holistic? Okay. So, Jared, on to you as well. So, how, how do you see this relationship between work and flourishing and Perhaps whether do you see it in terms of synergy or balance the, the relationship these areas of our life have with one another, leisure, work, work life balance, work life synergy, and so on? I think it's hard to make broad, like, uh, I guess assumptions is the word that I would say, right? Because for some people, like, work is life, and like you identify as your work self, right? Like, I, I'm an organizational psychologist, right? Like when I go to parties and people say, what do you do? Like, that's what I say. Right. And, and it, it like, do they, do they keep wanting to talk to you after you say that or <laughs> they, they, it, it's funny. Cause they, they do. But then, especially when I, when I'm like, Oh yeah. And I study flow, then they're like, Oh, like tell them that yeah, way. Yeah, and then yeah, like yeah. A, a crowd of people, it's like, Oh yeah. How do I get into flow at work for sure. But <laughs> I think for some people that like, work is life right and that your identity especially for entrepreneurs like because you are really investing like your your ideas like your your whole self is in work and in, in that case i think it's super important for you to feel flow at work to like really flourish in in that like domain of your life right um because it it, it 
encompasses so much of like the the Venn diagram that is ourselves, right? Um, at the same time, I think that there are people who, you know, work in a job that's like not that meaningful to them that, you know, really is like you sign on at nine and you leave at five and you like leave everything that you did during the day at home. And like at parties, like your work is not the thing that you're going to be talking about. Right. Uh, in that case, I think, you know, it's okay to get that, um, the flourishing experience or whatever, like outside of work doing something completely different and as long as you're kind of getting it from somewhere that that it's okay if that makes sense um in an ideal state i think you're peppering it in everywhere but i i think it really depends on the situation um and obviously my life is sort of dedicated to helping people get it at work and so i, I would encourage that but i think if people are like oh i don't feel this at, at work at all um then it, it can be okay for that to be the situation if you're sort of making up for it in, in other areas, if that makes sense. Yeah. So Can I follow up with Jared's comment with a do. question? Please actually? do, yeah. yeah. Um, and it may, maybe I'm going to throw it back to the, to the whole group because I am not well-versed on the, the, the discourse around flourishing. Do you all think it's possible, you know, to, to live, you know, a, a, a flourishing life when 30% of it is dedicated to something that you don't find uh, rewarding and meaningful? So I, that's a great question. Um, breaking it down to the 30% is a tricky question, obviously, but I'm thinking mm -hmm. of uh, the book, The Job, Ellen Rupelschell, who I think, I think is at Northwestern, and talks a lot about the relationship between work and meaning. Um, but it also, so, you know, generally I'm going to say, if you don't find meaning in your work, I think you're, you're fighting an uphill battle for sure. Right. And especially if you have to spend 30% of more of your kind of daily hours allotted to that. Um, but that, that also takes me back to the framing piece, right? Like how do you frame subjectively your experience to find meaning in your work, right? To have that inherent sense of purpose. Um, I'm thinking about stories of, you know, cab drivers who, who think they have the best job in the world. You know, they get to get people where they need to go. They get to chat them up and talk to them and get to know them. You know, there's a lot of people for whom I think, you know, they have jobs that other people would look at and say, there's no way I would ever do that. But for them, it is deeply meaningful. So, I mean, I, I think, no, there needs to be meaning in work, generally speaking, but you know how you access that meaning is a is a trickier sort of question. You want to come in, Jared, before it? Sure. Yeah, I I, I would just say that it, it people can have jobs that they're good at that they don't necessarily like doing, and the fact that they do it do it well and that they get paid for it and they can use the, the resources that they get from their work to then like you know, flourish like in their family lives. Right. And, and like, really, like, I don't like this being a software engineer, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not a software engineer, but I'm speaking, you know, but like, I'm good at it. I get paid well for it. And it allows me to like, you know, send my kids to private school or give them, you know, tennis lessons or whatever. And that, it, that fulfills me. So it's not the work itself. Um, but that's like a framing, I think of, of, 
um, why you would do something that you don't necessarily love or feel like that much meaning in, in like the apps that you're building, right? Like, oh, I build a shopping app for so-and-so and it's not like making the world a better place, but it's, you know, filling this need that I have um, to, to, you know, provide for my family or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I would follow on from Jared. So I, I, in answer to your question, Garrett, I, I would think, or I would argue that one can lead a flourishing life, even if 30% of it, they don't enjoy. Maybe they significantly don't enjoy it. Maybe they really quite dislike it, but only if other factors are in place that compensate for that. If those factors aren't in place that compensate for it, that person's probably not going to lead a life in which they have a very high level of well-being. Other factors being, for example, uh, a nice home life where they have um, you know, a wonderful family life and, and meet very meaningful friendships. But what facilitates that life is having this profession that they don't find particularly meaningful or enjoyable, but it brings them sufficient or perhaps significant financial material stability that provides for the areas of their life. If that isn't there, then I think it would be, I would imagine most cases one would find that people didn't have very high levels of well-being and so couldn't be said to be flourishing, but well, that's defined in terms of well-being. I mean, there can be levels of flourishing. Um, so it wouldn't be a really high, super flourishing life if one really didn't enjoy 30% of it. But um, I think it can be there's other factors in place. I think one other thing worth adding is that you know, human beings, we, we, we tend to look for meaning in things. We find meaning even in really unmeaningful things, especially when we're forced to do them or have you know, day in, day out. You know, we, we have to cope with these things. Um, this is, you know, one of the one of the people who's often referred to in flourishing research is, is Victor E. Frankel, his his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, where he talks about kind of the most extreme case of um, you know, prisoners in concentration camps during the Second World War and how they found meaning in the suffering as a way of coping with what they had to do day in, day out as as a coping strategy that, that, that got many people through this. For example, that pro, that life project they want to finish when they're, if they escape or if they're ever freed or trying to find their, their loved ones if they ever get out of the situation. Um, and of course, that's an extreme case, but to scale that right back, if you're doing this, you know, a certain thing day in, day out that you don't enjoy, you're going to likely bring in some coping strategies, deal with that, one of which would be to find meaning in things that perhaps you don't find that intrinsically meaningful. It's interesting you bring up two different points there, John, um, and, and you know this, I don't know that Garrett and Jared did, but I spent four or five years consulting for an NGO in Vienna that essentially did sort of like alternative Holocaust education. So Frankl was a huge part of that literature. And what is Frankl just such an excellent example of like framing, right? How do you find meaning in an, in an otherwise really disastrous and tragic situation? Um, but John, the other thing you bring up, you know, when we're measuring flourishing, right? So you you mentioned Marty Seligman earlier. So let's take UPenn's PERMA profiler, which, you know, PERMA is one of those kind of predominant measures of flourishing out there. Generally, the people who measure highest in flourishing on that profiler, which is a Likert scale zero to 10, right? They usually measure at sevens or eights, right? Mm -hmm. The people who measure kind of the highest in flourishing, they're not 10 out of 10. Not everything's perfect, there's almost always ways something can be better, right? And so I, I'm thinking about that and you do the simple math. Well, that's about 20 to 30% of that scale. That's not exactly where we want it to be, which I think is just sort of an interesting connection here. I want to bring us back as a great question, Garrett, and I'm glad we could have that, that sort of 
you know, side tangent. I want to bring us back to the business piece for a second. Um, I want to ask how to, um, you know, at the, at the risk of kind of oversimplifying this, but you both coach and consult entrepreneurs, um, you know, managers, leaders, execs, whoever it might be on how to, I think, help their companies or themselves find some of this sweet spot, flow, satisfaction, fulfillment, you know, efficacy, good outcomes, what are some of your kind of go-to strategies in your experience for how you help you kind of nudge people in that direction? Um, let's let's start with Garrett and then jump over to Jared. Wow, I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot. You know, there, we could probably have a very long conversation about yeah. the different interventions that that can be used. But um, I guess I'll I'll focus on who I spend most of my time with, which are which are entrepreneurs. Um, and I guess one thing they tend to have in common is the motivation is in place. Um, what's not always clear is what the motivation actually is and, and what's driving it. So, you know, I like to, I, I think I brought this up earlier, but, you know, if you want to build a, a sound structure, you have to have a sound foundation. And, and to me, that sound fit, that foundation is, is motivation and goals. Right. So not just having motivation, but unpacking it, right? Understanding intrinsically and extrinsically what drives you. Um, as Simon Sinek says, you know, being able to check in on your why periodically. And because when when things get difficult, you know, really being able to have that motivation to fall back upon. And then the other piece is is goals, right? Like um, and goals is an interesting topic for entrepreneurs. Particularly ones that are, you know, working on innovations, technological or or business business model innovations, because it's the stacking of goals that's so important, right? Is understanding the long term goals, the vision, where you're trying to go. You know, obviously knowing what you need to do day in and day out. Those kind of short term goals and tasks. And what I always tell entrepreneurs is those things are relatively constant. You know, like you're just cycling through the short-term stuff, right? You're you're trying to accomplish what you need to get done. You know, the long-term stuff is that framework for analysis. It's the it's the the kind of north star that's giving you a guiding light to make sure you're always going in the right direction. But for entrepreneurs, it's all the stuff that's in the middle that's constantly changing, right? Those midterm goals, weekly, monthly, quarterly. New information arises, new comp- competitors enter the market, new technological opportunities happen, new business opportunities happen. So this is a very dynamic process, right? So having your goals kind of a framework for your goals laid out that is adaptable to change is really, really important. Then there's a lot of tools to be able to do that. Above that is, of course, I think one that is neglected very much in the psychological world which is the biological, right? Making sure we've got our, our physical well-being uh, addressed. You know, we have good energy balance. We have the right kind of nutrition. We, we've got adequate sleep. We've got, you know, active and, and passive recovery in place, um, ideally with an ability to measure it. So it's not just, you know, qualitative and assumptive and, and reflective, but being able to tangibly kind of measure that piece. And then when we get above that, once we have the kind of motivation goals and biological pieces, then it's starting to unpack, 
you know, the components of well-being and, and performance. And to me, I, those things like using business speak, like, you know, a good entrepreneur building a business is trying to unlock levers, right? And the more levers that you can pull on, the more you can affect change. And I think the same kind of metaphor exists with like performance and well-being. The more levers you have, the more tools you have in your toolkit, the more improvements that you can make. And and those levers are are vast. You know, you know, some of them are are very internal and psychological. Some are very work environment focused. Yeah, there's there's so much there, and obviously, I think Gary, you're primarily working with individual entrepreneurs or maybe smaller teams. Jared, is it fair to say that in in your capacity as as a kind of consultant for one of the the big four? Are you typically working with larger teams or full-on organizations and thinking more about systems or ecosystems more specifically? Yeah, yeah. So in my day, I'm, I feel very grateful because in my day job, I really look at things from a macro level. And then, you know, in my independent work as a coach, I'm able to do one-on-one with the individual. And, um you know, in the in the independent consulting firm that I started during my PhD program, the Flow Group, like everything that I did used Flow Theory at each of those levels. So the clear goals, the challenge, skill balance, and feedback are again those three kind of antecedents, and I think that they scale um, from the individual to the organization, right? And so a lot of the the research um, in the workplace actually looks at sort of these org level variables, right? So, um, you know, are there feedback um, uh, like systems built into the processes of organizations, right? So, so many people, um, there's so much ambiguity in their workplace because they just never have those one-on-one meetings with their managers where their managers give them feedback or they have those meetings once a year, once every six months, right? And by the time that they get that feedback, it's been, you know, potentially six months or a year since the thing that they're getting the feedback on has happened. And it's like way too late to kind of make those adjustments. And so at the kind of org level, um, using those three prerequisites, I'm like, all right, you need to have like, scheduled one-on-ones like managers need to make sure that they're giving the feedback that they need to give to their employees like people also need to know what the goals are that their um, role is expected to achieve right so you know you could get to work and um, you know one team has a manager that has like morning um, like, you know, scrum meetings, right, where everybody kind of gathers around the table and talks about what their goals are for the day and what they need help with and those kinds of things. And then in the same organization, you just don't have a manager who does that. And people are kind of running around with like chickens with their heads cut off because they know what they were hired to do on paper, but they don't know exactly how to execute on those things. And so that just requires a little bit of managerial training and more communication from what, you know, from the top down. Right. And so, um, you know, building those specific processes is a way for organizations to kind of um, make their whole culture a little bit more like flow friendly, I think. Um, and, And I think that, you know, alignment, making sure that those goals are kind of like, you know, aligned from the top, like from the mission of the organization to their sort of larger bottom 
line goals for the quarter or for the year, um, you know, those trickle down. So, you know, if the company needs to make a million dollars, that means that X teams need to make X amount of money, right? Like X proportion of those and setting those goals accordingly um, in a way that, again, is not overwhelming. This is the challenge skill balance portion of that, right? Is like, are you setting the goals for your departments, for your teams, for your individuals at levels where they'll actually be able to accomplish those? Or are you overwhelming them from the start and setting them up from failure by like, setting these crazy high goals that are just never going to be accomplished, right? And organizations want to do that because they think, you know, setting this number makes people have to strive for that and get there. But the reality is that it can be, you know, very demotivating. Um, So working with organizations to kind of like realize the importance of putting these structures in place in the first place, um, I think is a really important, you know, kind of way to approach this, this issue. And then, you know, at the, at the kind of like team level for managers to be able to understand, you know, how much, you know, you have a team of, of five people, not all five of them are going to have the same level of skill, right? They're going to need different challenge levels, different kind of um, personalized goals that motivate them in different ways. Some people need their goals to be like very clear and like very like, you know, do this, then do this, then do this, then do that. Other people need to just be given a framework for like, I need you to like do this project by this time. And then you got to let them go and allow them to like do their own thing. Right. So as a manager, like knowing your people, understanding who they are and how much kind of handholding they need, where those goals need to be set. I think that's really important too, for um, kind of facilitating flow in the workplace. And I can keep going, but the individual level is the same, right? The individual level is like, do I know what I need to accomplish? Are those goals hard enough for me? And and like the feedback is like looking back and saying, did I actually accomplish the goals or not? And if not, why? Or if so, why, right? So each of those levels, I think, you know, taking those three kind of prereqs in mind is really important. And just scaling from there. I like that. Very tangible. So. Garrett, you can I I make a comment? Please. I do, because I love this is one of my favorite topics, and Jared just kind of primed it really, really well. And I think it's really important to define the types of organizations, too, right? Because, you know, I'm a big believer that everything fails, everything good fails at scale, right? Like, the, the greater the scale you go, the more you require hierarchies systems and structures. And that's really important for certain types of organizations, but it's incredibly detrimental to others. So if you're an organization that that produces widgets and now you're producing widgets globally, you know, you've got these systems in place, these hierarchical structures that is going to optimize the production of those widgets, right? And it's imperative. And I think Jared mentioned a, a lot of components of that that are really valuable. I want to look at the other side of that which is growing organizations that are driven by innovation. And when you put innovation in the mix as the core kind of product or service of an organization, and you have hierarchical structures and lots of systems that give people very clear direction and KPIs of what they're supposed to achieve in their little layer, um, innovation tends to crumble 
right? Because those individuals don't, their goals aren't aligned hierarchically with the different layers of the structure. They have less autonomy. They have less opportunities to achieve mastery in the process. And they don't, they don't necessarily have the space to be able to drive novel ideas or creative pursuits. So how do, you, how do you create innovative organizations that are scaling? That's what, where I think, like, I think flow theory comes in as well, because some of the most relevant organizational tools of innovative organizations are, that are being used at startups all the way up to companies the size of Google, you can get some of these similar results, but you can do it in a much more empowering way that gives the individual much greater sense of control. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, guys. This has been fascinating. Um, so we, we have a final question we'd like to ask all of our guests. We call it the flourishing question. What's the one lesson on flow and flourishing you want our listeners to walk away with? And what might be a practical step for putting that lesson into action? Jared. Ooh, okay. Uh, I mean, for me, the number one thing for me, I think, is the goal setting. I think that's the easiest, most practical thing that people can can do if they're not currently doing it. They're just, you know, there's all these theoretical things about how setting setting goals makes it so you don't have to actually think about what those goals are for the rest of the day. It helps you to concentrate and like manage your time a little bit better. So for me, the goal setting um, strategy is is the big takeaway. But I also, you know, I think the um, the framing kind of theme that we've been, um, you know, touching on throughout the conversation is really one of the most interesting things to me about this whole space is it's often about how you look at the situation and how you decide to respond to it. Um, and, and that is actually a learned skill that you can work on over time and improve at. Uh, and that has a lot of um, like beneficial, I think, downstream effects. So next week, Jared, we are actually having a chat with Todd Cashton, who is like one of the people in the world of psychological flexibility. Um, so we would just bring that back up. That'll be a lot of fun because yeah. he and his team, I think, just brought out or maybe just validated a new psychological flexibility measure that speaks, I think, I don't fully understand it yet. We're going to get into it with him, but speaks to some of those framing elements. That's awesome. Yeah. Garrett. Great. Oh, one takeaway. Wow. That's, wow. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm going to go back to, to my roots and, and my people, which are, which are entrepreneurs and, and innovators. And, and, and I touched on this earlier, but I think it's really important is, you know, all of the things we're talking about are humanistic pursuits. You know, humans are at the center of all of this. And, you know, entrepreneurship business by definition is really defined as, as value creation. But value is not created by firms. It's not created by businesses. It's created by a collection of individuals working towards the same shared goal or goals. And I think we just need to start reframing the way we operate in the business world as, as being human-centered. And um, I didn't mention this before, but I spent the first decade of my career as a development economist. And um, one of my favorite, all-time favorite books was by E.F. Schumacher. It's called Small is Beautiful. And it's economics as if people matter. And I think it's about time somebody starts writing books about entrepreneurship as if people matter. And not just entrepreneurship as the people being the consumer 
but entrepreneurship as people being the producer as well. Because if we can shift away from the firm being the unit and the individual being the unit, we can start, we can unlock a, a, an infinite number of interventions and environments that can empower people, right? And if the individuals working in an organization feel empowered, they feel autonomous, when people feel like they're part of something greater than themselves, that they're actually having an impact, have greater meaning, you know, not only do they you know, have a more flourishing and vibrant existence as an individual, but the probability of the efficacy of whatever it is they're trying to do is, is going to increase. Well, that's a excellent soundbite to sort of wrap up on. I do yeah. want to just add to it that, you know, you, you guys don't know this, but John and I met through a community of practice run by the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard. And specifically, we're both a part of a subcommittee on education for human flourishing. And I don't want to speak for John here, but I'm, I'm pretty confident we both feel that that's what education really needs to be thinking about is how does it become more human centered, not just about teaching what in large part are pretty irrelevant skills in a lot of cases and just trying to get people jobs or move them to the next level, but really help them sort of, you know, to take Scott Barry Kaufman, right, self-actualize become their best selves and, and really tap into, I mean, what I think is, is the world's single greatest resource, which is human potential. Here, here. Guys, this was awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time, especially on a Sunday to, to hang with us yeah. and, and talk shop. Thank you so much. Where, where can people find out about both of you, Jared, where can people find out about you online? Uh, probably best for me is LinkedIn. Um, just Jared Weintraub, find me. Feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to talk to people about really anything. Um, but yeah, excited to, uh, to have you reach out. And thank you both for, for having us. This was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. And Garrett, where can people find you? I, I, I'm with Jared, mostly on LinkedIn. Most of my other social stuff is pretty damn boring. So unless you want to see pictures of the meals I eat around the world on Instagram, uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. But, you know, just to echo what Jared said, um, this is one of the most flowy experiences that I can have. I host a podcast as well. By the way, mostawesomepodcast.com. I guess that's my other plug if yeah. you're interested in, in entrepreneurs. Um, but one of the things I love about podcasting, and actually it's one of my favorite things about life, is to talk about really important subjects with really incredibly smart and knowledgeable people. I always learn more than I can ever teach. And uh, what a, another one of those great experiences today. So thank you for having me. Cool. Yeah, I'm glad you thank mentioned you. the podcast. We'll, we'll throw that in the show notes as well. Here Absolutely. Again. But yeah, guys, you, you both rock. Really appreciate you. Um, well, I see you. We'll see each other Thursday for the roundtable. Cool. Good. Good. So I'll talk to you then. Um, but enjoy the rest of your Sunday and Garrett, enjoy the Alps. I'm jealous. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks, all right, guys. Have a good evening. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Yeah. Huge thanks to all of you for listening to today's show. If you like what you heard, please share it with friends, family, colleagues, and be sure to leave us a five star review. Uh, you can also find us on all social media platforms. Uh, we've got our own YouTube channel, and you can check out our website at flourishfmpodcast.com. We'd also love to hear from you. There's a survey in the show notes you can complete where you can complete any suggestions on guests you'd like to hear us interview or particular topics or themes you'd like to hear us talk about. 
We'd love to hear your feedback on that. So your feedback would be greatly appreciated if you could fill out that form. Until next time, thank you very much for joining us today. And keep putting in the work.